I grew up in St. Joseph, Missouri, near Kansas City. I had um, really good supportive Christian parents growing up and um, to say that I was comfortable living in St. Joseph was, would be an extreme understatement. It was August of 2003 that my dad told me that we would be moving to Washington, Missouri and my whole world changed. I was not expecting that. I was not ready for it and that control that I had in my own life was a protection for me. I felt like I was protecting myself from being hurt um, and I, I didn't like change. So we moved to Washington in December of 2003 and I really struggled with knowing that we were moving as a family but I was really angry and really sad and um, I cried probably for the two months before we moved every night and I, I've always been a really outgoing person but when I started middle school again at a new school halfway through the year I was terrified to go back every day. I, I was the new girl and I was verbally sexually abused by a lot of guys in my class and I was 13 and uncomfortable with it and I had, I had developed a lot faster than my really close friends and so that was already a vulnerable part of me of getting attention from guys that I didn't know how to handle very well and I didn't tell my parents about what was going on when I started school because I didn't want to be another reason for them to question our move and so I kind of just kept to myself and didn't really make an effort to make a lot of close relationships and just kind of was going through the motions and in February um, after we moved I got braces um, and my eating habits started to change a little bit because I couldn't eat solid foods and my teeth just hurt a lot and I lost about five pounds in the first month of having braces and I got a lot more attention. I, people started complimenting how good I looked and I began to build that up in my mind of, oh, I really, this makes me feel better. From all the loneliness and the sadness I had from the move, it was a temporary release of, of getting some kind of positive attention and it kind of planted a little seed in me that I didn't know how deep it was until as I lost a little bit more weight through braces, I got even more attention and people saying they wanted to look like me and, and that be began to become my identity. How others perceive me, I began to find, find identity in that. And so summer came after we moved and I still hadn't made a lot of friends and so I've always been an athlete growing up so I decided to start running and what became half a mile, became two miles, became five miles. And from the braces, my stomach had shrunk, so, but I wasn't choosing to eat more because I liked this attention I was getting from looking different. Um, what began as three meals became two meals, became half a granola bar. And I was still stuffing all these feelings of loneliness and, and not liking change and it was in December of 2004, exactly a year after the move, that I was um, hospitalized for the first time for anorexia. I was five foot five, 
um, 14 years old and weighed about 72 pounds or so. I don't even know how I had gotten there. It just was slow over time and me just stuffing those feelings. It, I was, if I was going to be emotionally uncomfortable, I was not going to be physically uncomfortable. That was my mindset and I chose to believe the lie that my identity was found in how others thought of me and it ruled my life. I cared more about how I looked and how I felt than I cared about anything else. I had broken off every close, close relationship that I had had. Um, my parents' trust was completely broken. My siblings and I didn't really talk. It was kind of like just a big elephant in the room that no one knew how to handle. And it was, that was my God. That was my only relationship at the time. And I found security in that. And my, um, I kind of, my weight kind of struggled up and down after that. I got a feeding tube. And my, after my first hospitalization, it was, it's a little tube that goes down your nose and then into your stomach. And I would eat what I could during the day and then at night. Um, so I would gain weight. It would give me nutrition while I slept. And um, my first treatment center was in Arizona. And it was huge. I spent my 16th birthday there. And it was really scary, and but I know I needed help, but I got to a place where I couldn't help myself. I knew that I had made choices, my own choices, to get to that state where I became helpless, but it was me believing the lie that that's where my identity was found, and I wanted to be comfortable in my own mind. And after two more treatment centers and um, really just this up and down battle with pushing God away when I needed him the most and I wasn't getting to the root of I was angry of how God made me. I think I I didn't believe the truth that God made me exactly how he intended and in my mind he hadn't made me good enough that I was just kind of average and there was nothing significant about me and I just really fed into that lie and and it wasn't until I my last treatment center in Kansas City that I had I had my first really major breakthrough and I was sitting down with one of the nurses and I was just like screw it I'm just going to tell her exactly how I feel and I just really vented to her about being angry for struggling with an eating disorder being angry for wanting it and I just I was sad and I was lonely and I was fearful and I was scared of gaining weight and I was scared of getting better because this has been my coping mechanism for so long I didn't know what I was without it and instead of her just jumping back and saying Alyssa don't believe those things that's those are like you can't think that way she was just she listened to me and was just really empathetic and just said I'm really sorry that you've gone through that, Alyssa. And it was just kind of, God just really showed his grace to me in that, and that I was okay to feel the things that I was feeling, but I just needed to be honest with where I was at so I could really trust God to take me out of it. And it was then that I decided to make a mental decision that I'm going to choose to believe truth 
over what I was feeling. I choose to believe that if, if God was a God that died for me and had complete freedom and wholeness for me, why would his plan be for me to stay in this prison? So I choose to believe um, his promises over my own feelings. And um, part of what, one of the scariest parts for me was I, I never felt close to death. I never felt like, even though my physical state was where it was, I was choosing to be in that denial. But my doctor in Kansas City told me that the number one cause of death and eating disorders is heart failure. And when I got to Kansas City, I, they did a scan of my heart and a huge piece of it was gone. And I was only 20 years old and had, uh, I was in the 99th percentile of osteopenia, which means one more percent and I would have osteoporosis. Um, so about the bones of an 80 year old woman and I was only 20 years old. And I think it was just a wake up call that I, I had chosen to believe a lie so much that I literally almost lost my life. And I really just had to let go of that control that I had held onto for so long. I fear that if I, if I let go, I didn't know what was gonna happen and I, I wasn't trusting God that he is a father that wants complete wholeness and freedom for me. That he's a God that loves me and made me and has great things for me and that I, my life wasn't a mistake and that he does turn all things for his good. So I chose to let go of the chains that I had been, the chains that I had been holding on to. I remember I was sharing my story at a revive group one of the past times and we were singing uh, Amazing Grace and the Chris Tomlin version goes, uh, my chains are gone, I've been set free. Um, and I just really got an image of that when God died on the cross, he broke all those chains. Every fear and bondage that I had had, he had broken. So the only ones I had left were the ones that I was choosing to hold on to. And so until I was willing to completely let go and trust God, did I actually find complete freedom. And so now it's been about two and a half years that since my last treatment center and I can promise that I am a completely new person in Christ and in my relationship with Jesus and I just something that God really just spoke to me through all of it was that he's a God that wants us to be just completely secure in him and that only in him can I be completely whole and now my relationship with my parents is better than it's ever been. My relationship with my friends has reached just a new, genuine level. Growing up in the past, I've, I found security and people depending on me to be the one that was always bubbly and always happy. And like every time I would get a compliment, I would just that, I, it was like I need to hold on to that, like I can't let it go. And so now finding freedom and being it's okay not to be okay and to be honest with where I'm at, because only when I'm able to 
bring the things that are inside of me out into the light, can I actually deal with them instead of trying to be my own, be my own savior, be my own fix it. I'm just so grateful for him never leaving me. And I am learning to trust him now, even in struggles that I face now, and knowing that there's nothing that he can't get me through. And that anytime I feel alone or scared, that the first thing I need to do is just drop everything and just be with him. There's a passage in scripture in Matthew that says, um, where Jesus says, all who are weary, come to me and I will give you rest. And that really has resonated with me through this struggle just because I have just found a lot of my identity and comfort in, I mean, not even comfort, but just finding a lot of my identity and working and just if I have all my ducks in a row or if I know exactly where I'm headed and a sense of perfectionism and having to be this great person, I just, you get so tired. And so being able to really just come before Jesus and just lay it all down and just, God, I just want to rest in you has really been a, just so restoring for my soul and for my spirit just to really be able to rest in Jesus and know that he is more than able to carry me in times when I am weak, which I feel like is often. But God is so faithful that every time that I come before him, he is always there. Even in times that I'm not actively seeking him, there's just, his presence is just there and, and he is there for me in little ways that he does never leave us. What I would say to someone struggling with an eating disorder is that you are not alone. And the feelings that you are feeling and the thoughts that you are having, I guarantee you I've had them. I've met many other girls who've had the same feelings. And even though things might sound stupid in your head or might seem crazy or little things might bother you so much that you don't have to walk through that struggle alone. And God does have complete freedom for you. And what seems impossible now, God already has you in his hands. He is so ready to dig you out and to rescue you from this, from this hell and from this prison that it feels like it is now. And I just really encourage you to be honest with someone nearby you and um, people that you think may not know probably already do and it's just I encourage you to be vulnerable and be willing to be weak and to be open about what you're struggling with because only when you're completely honest is when you can begin to take steps forward to freedom. Well like all the weeks in the, in the secret series uh, each of those who had their story to tell um, they all had a verse, actually they had more than a verse, but they, they, they had a key verse, key verses, a key text that really helped them um, in that struggle and, and God leading them through. And Alyssa's is Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, and she's just going to read that for us uh, now, and then I'm going to uh, share a few thoughts from it. Okay. It says, For I know that the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. When you uh, go have a, a meal at a, at a friend's house or maybe go out for a meal, there's an order to which the meal comes, right? There's, uh, you know, if you do, there's an appetizer that comes first and then a salad and then the meal and then the dessert. Uh, you, you don't, it doesn't go the opposite way. You don't get dessert first or not just dessert unless you're my kids. My kids, they want uh, dessert for every meal except breakfast because they don't want to miss out on cereal. But other than that, um, you know, they want dessert and they want it. So you don't just, you don't go and just have dessert. You don't do that first and you don't just have to, you know, you eat that dessert and it's like it doesn't really fill you so you keep eating dessert and dessert and dessert. Um, there's several reasons for that. Uh, number one, if you're not diabetic, that's a good way to get diabetic. Uh, but the secondly, it's just like it doesn't give you sustaining energy. It doesn't, it doesn't you know, it has a short little burst, but it's not sustaining. I, I study a, a lot. I do enjoy it, but my mind can only take so much and so uh, usually I need sugar to like give me that little burst, but it doesn't give me the stamina. In fact, if you have dessert, if you eat sugar without the proteins and, and the fibers and all the other things that they say are, are, are good for you, uh, it's only with that that it, it, it actually is a good thing, actually can work a, against you. And I bring that all up this morning because Jeremiah 29, 11 is a dessert verse. Um, it's an amazing verse, but it's a dessert verse. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of dessert verses in the Bible. Uh, they're on uh, coffee cups. Uh, God works all things for my good. Um, come to me, all you are weary, and I'll give you rest. Joy of the Lord is my strength. God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. These are all true. They're all amazing, but they're dessert. They're, they're, there's, some, there's a backstory. There's a context for which these things were, were told. And if you, if you just live these isolated verse to isolated verse to isolated verse, uh, it, it's just not going to be sustaining for you. You're going to get a burst of joy uh, here on a Sunday, and you're going to get a burst of joy during your week, but the, it's not going to be sustaining. It's nice for a coffee cup. But it isn't good for, for living. In fact, I, I would say pretty much all verses on a coffee cup, uh, they, they need to have more on them because they can be misleading. There's only really one coffee cup verse that I've ever seen that I thought, no, that's a coffee cup verse. I have a friend of mine uh, who's, a, who's a pastor who someone in their church gave them, uh, gave them a verse um, on his, uh, this coffee cup that had this verse on, on, on his anniversary. And it was 1 Corinthians 7, 3, which says... The husband should give to uh, his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. <laughs> now, that's a ver that's a verse you can put on a coffee cup. You know that'll. But outside that, if you don't have that on your coffee cup, then it's probably a dessert verse uh, that you need to kind of get more context. Well, you probably need to get more context for that verse too. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Because you read this verse, it's like God has good plans for you, and, and God has good plans uh, for me, and this is, this is amazing. It's, it's like dessert. It's this burst of like, yeah. 
But then, like, so you hear that on Sunday, then on Monday, you go, you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and apply for that job, you know, this job I've, I've wanted, and, and you apply for it, and, and then you don't hear the first week, and you don't hear the second week, and then the third week, you get a letter in the mail from the company that says something like, hey, you know what, we thank you for your interest, but we decided to um, give that job to someone else, and you're like, well, wait a minute, I thought God had good plans for me, I thought God had a bright future for me. And that's what it feels like to only eat dessert. There's this misleading thing that happened, and there's these passages in the Bible that, that, are, that, that, that aren't good if they're not eaten with the whole meal. They can provide these short-term bursts of enthusiasm but at the end of the day, aren't sustaining, but leave us in a great deal of disappointment. And uh, just as a commentary on just how uh, most Christians live, I think they live on dessert verses without really understanding the context because the context of this story, let me tell you a little bit about the context of Jeremiah 29. The context of Jer- 20, uh, Jeremiah 29 is Jeremiah 27, 28. Um, and in there you'll learn about how uh, the Israelites had turned their hearts away from the one true God, Yahweh. And they, they had got into idolatry. And idolatry is basically taking anything that isn't God and treating it like it is God. So, in the, so you'll read in the Old Testament how they would make, a, you know, like a graven image out of like a, you know, like a cow or something, which is always strange to me. It's like, you know, maybe a cheetah. I mean, that's kind of cool, but like a cow, really? But anyway, so they, or a calf. But they would make these graven images, and they would worship this graven image. Well, we do the same thing with things like our career or a relationship. It's something that we treat as our God. This is what we serve. Everything else is secondary. And this leads our heart away from the one true God, and it brings us into, uh, into bondage. Uh, by the way, one of the ways that you read the Old Testament is the Old Testament is true and accurate and a historical event. It actually happened. But it also is a shadow uh, to things to come that we see more real in our lives um, spiritually. What I mean by that is where they went into physical slavery because of their idolatry. We go into a spiritual slavery because of our spiritual idolatry. So anyway, uh, so what ends up happening with the Israelites? Because of their idolatry, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. uh, The evil Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon and he uh, takes the Israelites out of the holy city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a picture of the heavenly city uh, that is the city to come. And, um, you know, Babylon is a, is a picture of, of an earthly city. And so they come and they force march them out of uh, Jerusalem to Babylon. And just so you know, that if, if you go if a straight line from Jerusalem to Babylon is 500 miles, but the route that they took was about 800 miles, which is basically like walking from here to Denver. And so it was a big deal. And then once they got into the, the city of Babylon, uh, they literally paraded them around the city of Babylon because now they were a symbolic image that the gods of Babylon were greater than the god of the Israelite god. And so it was just mockery. It was, it was horrible it was, and terrible. And so, so what, what happens then is there's this prophet named Hananiah who comes uh, around in Jeremiah 29, or excuse me, 28, and says, hey, Guys, I got great news. God says, in two years, we're out of here. It's going to, you know, we're, it's bad news now, but man, uh, don't worry about like settling in. Uh, don't get comfortable. Uh, soon this will all be over. And God, in two, two short years, we'll be out of here. 
And Jeremiah comes along and, and says, hey, man, you're lying to these guys. This isn't what God says. In fact, he says uh, to Hananiah, God says to Hananiah through the prophet Jeremiah, you have made these people trust a lie. So it's against the backdrop of this, uh, this uh, false promise of prosperity uh, that, that circumstances are going to be wonderfully aligned just as they see them. Jeremiah said, uh, sends a letter uh, to the Israelites to, in Babylon and says, basically, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. Now, can you guess what the life expectancy was for someone back then? Psalmist says three score and ten. Three scores, 20, 10, 7. Okay, yeah. Basically, you're here for life. You're going to die here. In fact, your kids are going to die here. You're not going anywhere. Your circumstances are not going to change. Oh, by the way, God has good plans for you. <laughs> He's got a hope and a future. That's the context that we're talking about. They were supremely disappointed about their life. It was in this despair. So these were not easy words to hear. But Jeremiah said, hey, look, this is real, though. God, God does have a hope. God does have a future. God does have good things for you. And, and just to kind of say that this is, this is where the battle is for us because the, the battle for us is one of faith. Faith, um, faith is, is, doesn't rely on what it sees. It's opposed to sight, and it trusts what God sees. And so th this is where God leads us. God leads us to these places where it's like, I don't see how this could be good. Yet paradoxically, God says, I'm in control. I'm taking care of things. What I have you in is for your ultimate good, is for your ultimate welfare. Your future is bright. Maybe not, maybe not, it's maybe not what the way that you see them. It's maybe not circumstantially the way that you would have this thing play out. And that's where it is. So do we have faith? Do we trust him or not? But anyway, the promise stood that God was going to uh, fully restore them. And I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I know for me, I often hear uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 as the way Hananiah would say it, which, get ready, man. Your things, are, things are looking bleak, but your circumstances are going to change. When I hear things like this, I think, yes, I can't wait for my circumstances to change. Which may or may not happen, but this is the truth that remains. The truth that remains is that God has a future. God has a hope. God has plans for us that are for our good. And what, where, I'm, where I need to find myself is what God am I going to serve? Am I going to serve the God of my stomach? Am I going to serve the God of relationship? Am I going to serve the God of money? Am I going to serve the God of health? Am I going to serve the God of prosperity? Or am I going to serve the one true God? Am I going to believe him or am I going to believe what I see? And this is where they found themselves. So I find myself, my circumstances not making sense to me and hearing things the way uh, Hananiah said it and not where Jeremiah said it. And Martin Luther had this to say. He said, what the heathen had in their wood, we have in our opinion. So it's basically saying, just as the Israelites um, uh, got into bondage because of their idolatry, the same thing happens to us. That we get 
uh, we have our idols. For Alyssa, she was so brave and so honest in saying, for me, it was image. It's how people saw me. It's how I felt. It's how I looked. Her, her bondage wasn't the circumstances or this uh, disease that she had. It was, it was this control. It was this idol. That was the true source of the bondage. For me, I, I think I'd say like being important. I just... I just, I worship the idol of being important at times. And it comes out in my relationships. It comes out in relationship with my, my wife, with my kids. You know, you know how kids are. I mean, it's just straight, you know, let me, let me introduce you to my three interruptions. Simon, <laughs> Ella, and Josie. And I mean, just interrupt. That's what kids are. They interrupt. And, and most of the time, I just, I'm just like, don't interrupt. Even my wife, just don't interrupt me. And I'm thinking, you know, I can justify on a surface, well, you know, what I'm doing here, you know, I'm, you know, I'm preparing, I'm doing, I'm doing important stuff. And, but when I peel back the layers, um, and usually like several days later, um, is I realize, man, I just think I'm more important than my wife. I think I'm more important than my kids. I'm impatient because I... I think I, I'm not getting the respect that I think that I deserve. And I begin to pursue that more than I pursue anything else. So for Alyssa, it's image. for me, times it's feeling important. What about you? Where's your, what's, what's, what's the idol that creeps up in your life? What's the graven image? What's the thing? What's the, what's the thing that you begin to center around, the thing that you chase after the most, that if it gets taken away from you, you begin to squeal a bit? It's where there's slavery. It's where there's anxiety. Where are you anxious? Where are you tired? Where are you restless? There's an idol there. It's got you in bondage. It's taking you somewhere. God wants you to be free. You're chasing after freedom the way you see it. But God speaks to you in that situation and says, I've got good things for you. Well, how can that be unless the situation change? Here's the thing. God may change your situation. But where we're focused on our situation, God's focused on our transformation. If he doesn't change you, and just changes your circumstances, guess what happens? You go right back into bondage. That's not very loving. That's not very caring. Alyssa didn't, this was a, a part she was said off camera, but I remember her saying that her doctors just told her this is something she was going to struggle with for the rest of her life. Now, why do they say that? They said that because what happens with most people is they never deal with what's really inside them. They just deal with the surface thing. But the great news about her story is that God transformed her from the inside out. So what about your situation? Is it a good, is it a good situation? Is it a bad situation? If you're in a bad situation, you know what? God can turn it for good. He can turn it for good. And, and the call for us is to seek him. That's what it says there in Jeremiah. What, what about a good situation? Are you in a good situation? Hey, don't be foolish. Don't think that your circumstances lining up the way you see fit is actually going to bring you freedom. Seek the Lord. That's what it says 
You will find me if you seek me with all your heart, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, all the things that you've lost in this life, you're going to get back in this life or the life to come. You have, you have a hope in Jesus of nothing but good. Even the, even the bad things, he turns into good things. He's just absolutely amazing. Now, how is this possible, and how can we be so sure? How can we be so sure that if we lay down what enslaves us, how can we be so sure that God has good things for us? Well, I told you how the Israelites were exiled from Jerusalem. Several centuries later, Jesus was exiled from Jerusalem. He was dragged outside the city, and he was executed. And it, and it wasn't uh, just symbolic, it was reality. And you always executed someone outside the city because... You, you never executed someone inside because it was symbolic of being banished. It was symbolic of being exiled. It's, it's outside the city, you lose safety. Outside the city, you lose community. Outside the city, you are thrown out. And he was killed on our behalf. This is what it says in uh, Hebrews 13. It says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That means to change them, to transform them. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Basically saying, hey, look, these things in this life, in this world, these things that I surround myself that I think are going to make my life really great, we don't seek these things. Let's get away from these things. Let's focus on the city that is to come. Here's the point. Jesus was kicked out. He was exiled. He was banished. On the cross, he was forsaken so that we may, we may never be forsaken. He took our banishment. He took our exile. Sin and idolatry deserve banishment. They deserve to be, it deserves to be exiled. We deserve to be out. We deserve to be pushed out, but Jesus went outside voluntarily so that we can be brought in, so that we can be brought in eternally in the new Jerusalem, the new city that is to come. And he truly has great plans for us in this life and the life to come. If we trust him. I don't know what your situation is uh, today. I don't know if you think you're in a good one or a bad one. But the call for us is to believe him. Any other, any other path that we take is going to lead us into bondage. That may manifest next month. It may manifest next year. May, it will manifest. And you'll, how did I get to this place? What happened? It's because you began to follow and trust another God besides the one true God. But hey, he's calling out to the weary. He's calling out to the burdened. He's calling out to the heavy laden. And he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Will you come to him today? Why don't you get out your communication card?